theologically rich passage for us this morning. Well, if you're visiting here today, uh, the past few messages at a church, we've been going throughout the book of Romans, and that's how we study scripture. We start from the beginning, and we work our way to the end. And just as a way of recap, in the beginning of Romans, we first saw the occasion of justification. Why is this justification so important? And we saw in chapters 1 to 2 how all of us, both Jew and Gentile, we are deserving of God's wrath because of how we exchange what is natural, the natural worship of God for something that is unnatural, the worship of ourselves and idols. And this thing called idolatry, it plagues all of us. And when we read and we think of that word idolatry, we tend to think it's something that the primitive peoples have done, where they made these statues of wood and iron and metal, and they worship these false gods. But what Paul is getting at is that all of us have this disease of self-idolatry. Now, for many of us, if someone says, you are a self-idolater, you worship yourself, now, we want to get defensive, right? And we just say, I know I'm not perfect, but I don't literally worship myself. I don't think I'm in the center of the universe. And to that, let me present to you a situation. Say that I go to your house, and somewhere in the attic, I find your high school yearbook, and I turn to your graduating class picture with everyone standing with smiles. Now, when I turn to that page, who's the first person your eyes go to? Maybe for some of you, that cute girl that you had a crush on. But for most of us, we go to ourselves, don't we? Because it's all about how we look, how we are presented, what affects us. When we're in a traffic jam, do we immediately think, I pray that no one has gotten hurt, or do we immediately think, what's going to happen to my schedule? Our idolatry comes out in many ways. And Paul is saying that we are plagued with this idolatry. Therefore, this justification where this idolatrous heart is forgiven, it is of the utmost importance. And so if you're honest and humble enough to receive the reality of your idolatry, then justification is going to be one of the most important things in life. And so far up to today, we've been breaking down what it means to be justified, what it is, how we are justified, what it's not. Just as a quick review, justification is defined as an act, a declarative act, unchanging act of God's grace where he pardons our sins and receives us as perfectly righteous. If you remember, it's not the same thing as being forgiven because forgiven means that you are pardoned. You may go. But justification means now you may come and receive the relationship between God and his creation. And this justification is received because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, conferred onto us by faith alone. Whether that faith be strong or weak, our assurance now is not in the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith faith. If you remember the illustration of holding on to that branch on that cliff, whether in your mind you think that branch is going to save you, what actually saves you is the strength of that branch who is Christ. And though your faith might be weak, praise God that Christ's faith, Christ's obedience is 
perfect. And so today, in this passage, we mark the end of this section of justification. And here, what the Apostle Paul, he's answering, he's answering this question. Now, okay, now, how can one person's sacrifice, Jesus Christ, bring about such incredible benefits to us living today in 2018? How can something what Christ had done thousands of years ago in his actual death and resurrection actually apply to us living today? Isn't there a distance between him and us? When Christ says that he defeated and conquered sin and death, how can we say that we conquered sin and defeated death? How can we make that connection? It's similar to these kinds of situations. I remember one time being at a carnival, playing one of those games, and I spent a lot of money getting good at this game. And one time, I finally won the grand prize. And as soon as I won, the worker says, winner. And as soon as he said winner, all my friends around me, they said, we won. We won. And I look at them. And I say, I won. <laughs> but it's a situation where they can take part of the winning by way of another. How does that happen? Another situation, earlier this week, uh, Pastor David, our college and youth group pastor, he asked me, is it right for me to celebrate Villanova's championship victory? Because I didn't go to Villanova. And you know what I said? Of course. Go Wildcats. You are a part of Villanova, even though it's by four degrees of separation. You are pastoring the students who go to the same school of the players who actually won that game. So go, burn couches, go out and have parades, do what you need. But do you see how what someone else had done can also be shared by someone else? And that's the question that Paul is asking here. And he's anticipating that question. How can what Christ had done in his full humanity and full deity be applied to us where I can say, I defeated sin, I defeated death? And Paul does this, and we're going to do this in three points. Point number one, first we have to realize that death, it is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Point number two, our death is in Adam. Our death is in Adam. And point three, our life is in Christ. Our life is is in Christ. And so we'll tackle this passage in those three points. Before we continue, can we bow our heads and ask the Holy Spirit to help us in receiving his word this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you've given us this word to guide us and to direct us in all ways of life. Help us to receive even such a deep and theologically rich message that we may receive it in hunger, that it may be like sweet honey to our souls. We pray all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so how Paul tackles this question, he first, he sets up a contrast of two different people. The first contrast is with Adam, the first man, and the second contrast is with Jesus Christ, who he calls the last man, and he puts them forth as representatives. Christ is our representative when we put our faith in him. So what is true of him is true of us, right? One of the uh, best ways that we explain it here at Renewal is one of our pastors at West Philly, before he married his wife, 
he did not have free laundry. But his wife's parents owned a laundromat. After they got married, what's true of her? Free laundry. It's true of, true of him. Free laundry. And likewise, what's free of his parents, a hardware store, is free for her. She can get all the screws and, and all the tools that she needs. What's true of him is true of us. And that's what we're talking about in terms of representation. So in verse 12, he begins this contrast of how Christ represents us. But now before he continues on to Christ, he writes, just as sin came into the world through one man, which is Adam, and right when you expect him to finish his sentence, he stops. And if you look in your Bibles at the end of verse 12, you should see a hyphen. And that designates that Paul, he's stopping here. He's going on a tangent. He's saying, before I get to Christ, let's stop here for a second. Because I want you to really understand what it means that we are in Adam. Because only once you know the seriousness, the sobriety of the sin and death that Adam brings, only then can you see and taste how sweet Christ is. Is. So he goes all the way through those verses, all the way to verse 18, talking about Adam and what he had done and what he had brought into this world before he gets to Christ. He says, before we go on, let's make this straight. And he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What Paul is doing here is convincing us that you and I first we're in corporate solidarity with Adam. He was our representative. What's true of him in his sin in the garden was true of us in our sin and disobedience to God. And he writes that it is because of sin, that original act of transgression that we see in Adam, that death comes about. Sin produces death. As we see in verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and therefore death spread to all mankind. He's more explicit in Romans chapter 6, 23, where he says, for the wages of sin is death. So what God is saying here, death is not how I intended it to be for you. But death came as a result of, of sin and today we have a very naturalistic view of death we think that it's just a way of life don't we i don't know how many of you guys remember the movie forrest gump probably one of the best movies of the 90s and one of the things that i really loved about that movie it gave so much insight into life i think a lot of my upbringing is attributed to sally fields forrest gump's mother who gave these great lines pretty much raised me. Those lines such as, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Remember that? There's another scene where Forrest, he's on his shrimp boat, shrimping, and he hears word that his mother's sick. Immediately, he jumps out of the boat. He's swimming, and the next scene, he's running home, and he walks into his mother's bedroom, and he sees her in bed, sick, and he says, what's wrong, mama? And she goes, and if you remember, she says, Oh, I'm just dying, Forrest, with a smile. I'm just like, what? You're dying, and you're just happy, and you're just blissfully waiting in bed? And he goes, why are you dying, Mama? I practiced that accent for a little bit. <laughs> and she just says, it's my time, Forrest. 
don't be afraid. Death is just a part of life, something we're all destined to do. And as wise as Sally Fields is, but that is not true. It is not true. Death is not a part of life. Paul says the exact opposite. That God's original intent for you and I is to have life. And it is because of sin that death comes into the world and death spread to all men because all have sinned. Sin is the bringer of death. Cornelius Plantinga Jr., he's a prominent Christian philosopher. He wrote this book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he writes, God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, peace. It breaks the peace. It interferes with the way things are supposed to be. So that's why Jesus, if you remember, when he came to the grave of his dear friend Lazarus, and his sisters, they're in tears saying, Jesus, only if you were here earlier, you would have prevented my brother from dying. And when Jesus sees the tears in their eyes and he sees that grave, we read in John chapter 11, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And after that, we get the shortest verse of all scripture, two words, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because death is not the way it's supposed to be because he knows that when he gave life that's not how we are to end up but we are to have life in him and it breaks his heart that sin has brought in such corruption and death and here's the logical connection that paul is making here he says you have to follow with me we see the evidence of death in all of us Death is coming for all of us. One philosopher said, death is the great equalizer, whether you are great or small. And Paul is pointing to that death as evidence of how sinful you and I are. So he presents that sin brings forth death. So if you see the reality and evidence of death in your life, what's the conclusion? That there is sin in you. Because you can try to tell somebody that you are sinful. And they're going to say, that's very abstract. But you tell somebody with terminal cancer that death is a reality. And sin is the cause of that. They have something now to hold on to. And what Paul is saying is, sin is what brings forth death. All the way back in Adam. Death is the product of sin. So if death is inevitable in your life, it is because in you there is sin. All the way down to the most evil person, to the most generous and altruistic person in the world. All of us die because we are all guilty of sin. And Planaga, he continues, he says, sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God had joined together like some devastating tornado. Corruption both explodes and implodes creation. Because when God created the world, there was a shalom, a peace, a wholeness. And God's design was that he initially intended for Adam and for the rest of mankind to be an everlasting life with him. He writes, it included a world where people would work in peace with fruitful effect. No more Excel formula errors. You can actually have fruit of your labor without any curse of the ground. 
He says all humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, lean toward God, and delight in God. There would be shouts of joy and recognition from women in the streets and men in the, in the seas. This shalom includes strong marriages. It includes secure and safe children. It includes nations and people groups in this new world where they treasure the differences in one another. No more graffiti on the highway overpasses. Your professor would actually know your name, he says. And he says, nobody would unfriend anybody on Facebook. Business associates would rejoice in each other's promotions. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, the whole world is groaning. It's waiting until God finally redeems us back to shalom and peace. And it is because of sin that brings forth death and all of its corruption. Augustine once said that evil is a privation, privation of good. And what he's saying is evil by itself cannot stand. All that evil can do is take something good and twist it. C.S. Lewis, he continues, he says, goodness can be good by itself, but badness is simply spoiled goodness. Meaning, God created all things good. Money, relationships, nations, cities, food. But because of sin, we corrupt what is initially good and make it bad all because of sin. And the question now here is, have you gotten so jaded in life, so far away from knowing God's initial intent and his heart and his love for this world and for you that whenever you see such corruption that stems from sin, even death, we just assume that's just how life is. Every time we see that story on CNN, every time we encounter a toddler uh, having a tantrum, and we see something the way that it's not supposed to be, how comfortable are we just saying, that's just how life is? Or is there something that tells us, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be? When you go to that funeral, when you're by that person on his bedside, as he's fighting cancer, when you do see your toddler undergoing a tantrum, when you see that missile warning flying over your nation, you're supposed to see how it is sin that brought that corruption and disrupted God's intent for the world. And the fact that sin and death and corruption is evident in all of us, the question he's asking is, are you taking seriously what Paul is saying, that there is this such thing called sin in our lives, and it's this sin that's causing all of this? The same way you take death seriously, do you take your sins seriously, whether Christian or non-Christian, all of us affected by it because we're all found in Adam? R.C. Sproul, a prominent pastor who recently passed away, he said, there is virtually no heinous act which I am intrinsically incapable of committing. And I am speaking as a Christian. Christians have committed murder. 
Christians have committed adultery. Christians steal. Christians lie. Christians start wars. Christians have abortions. They do all kinds of unspeakable things. And when we see the effects of sin and death and corruption, how fast are we to look inside of us and say, that's the reason why I see this. We're very quick to distance ourselves from all the corruption that we see. But what Paul is taking these verses to make us understand, no, it's because of your sin that is causing this death and this corruption. How many of us, every time we make a mistake, we simply say, I'm not perfect, I know I'm a sinner, I want to move on. When we say, I'm sorry to our spouses or to our children, we simply confess, yes, I'm a sinner. Let's move on. That's why Paul stops. He says, are you breaking over your sin? The way that Jesus breaks when he sees death? Knowing that it's not the way it's supposed to be. When I do blow up in anger, there's not, there's not the way it's supposed to be. When my mind goes into unholy thoughts, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And you get on your knees and say, God, forgive me because I know this is not how you created me. That's why he spends a lot of these verses on this point before he gets on to Christ. Because for many of us, we're very quick to go to the gospel, very quick to go to grace. But unless you see the severity and the sobriety of what sin brings, we're not going to taste the sweetness of Christ. And sin not only brings physical death, it brings a spiritual death for eternity. And that's what Paul is getting here. That Adam is the forefather, not only of the physical death, but a spiritual one that separates you from God for all eternity. The second and third point, and we'll go a little bit faster here, uh, point number two, our death is in Adam. So Paul here writes that death is the product of sin and of one man, Adam, and as a result, death spread to all men. And so as we can see, all of mankind since Adam that we have death coming into our lives. Now here, we have to clarify this notion of how we are responsible and culpable of something that Adam had committed. And the way that a lot of the theologians have uh, uh, come to think about this throughout history is, first, you can see it as this. The way that Adam sinned in the garden is analogous to the way that we sin today. Just like Adam who disobeyed in the garden, I disobey God's word today. And so there is a pattern-like association. Just like he sinned, I sin today. That's one way to view it. Another way to view it is when Adam sinned, his spiritual DNA got corrupted. And that got passed down all throughout the generations into me today. Therefore, everything I do is corrupted by nature. And as true as those concepts are, I think Paul, he's going a little bit stronger in his argument. He's not saying we sin like Adam. He's not saying we sin because of what he conferred onto us. You know what he's saying? When Adam sinned, we sinned. Look with me in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, which is Adam's original sin, led to condemnation for all men. Look at verse 19. 
By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So Paul is saying, when Adam sinned, you and I and the rest of humanity actually sinned, and we are culpable for that sin. Therefore, we reap the wages of death, both physical and spiritual. And it is here when many of us in our minds are uh, blaring, unfair, unfair. How can what Adam did back then, even before I was born, how can I be responsible and being seen as actually sinning in Adam? Yeah, one pastor, he writes, this teaching sounds strange. In fact, it sounds repugnant to modern Western ears. Why? Because we are highly individualistic. In the West, each man is an island maybe interconnected, rising and falling, succeeding or failing according to his own actions and decisions and abilities. But it hasn't always been like that. In the 17th century in England, there was a poet by the name of John Donne, and he writes, no man is an island entire of itself. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is piece of the continent, a part of the main." If a lump of soil is washed away by the sea, Europe becomes smaller. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And Paul, what he's teaching here is the doctrine of corporate solidarity, the the doctrine of federal headship or representation where one representative's individual acts has implications for the larger group. And this is a doctrine that theologians have delved in for hundreds and hundreds of years. And today, I just want to give two observations on this, and perhaps it'll help us. First of all, best as you can, try to step out of your Western, individualistic, and modern way of thinking where you should be responsible for your own actions and no one else's. Because this idea of corporate solidarity and representation, it hasn't been a problem all throughout history. And even now, in many cultures, it's assumed. When a king declares war on another kingdom, everyone in that kingdom is at war with the opposing kingdom because of what the king has done. Growing up in your family, whatever decisions your parents make, it also affects the children. Back then, if your last name was Baker, you baked bread. If your last name was Schumann, you made shoes. If your parents were a farmer, you were a farmer. This idea of corporate solidarity is not new. It's been throughout all of history. And even today, when President Trump meets Kim Jong-un in their epic meeting, all eyes are on that meeting. Why? Because we know that the actions of one man can literally affect the lives of millions. Corporate solidarity. And other cultures, they don't have a hard time accepting the reality of this concept. For example, this illustration isn't perfect, but it at least highlights how you and I can be uh, thinking in this Western mindset. One of the shows that my wife and I watch a lot are travel shows. But not the typical travel shows, but Korean travel shows. And in Korean travel shows, it's a little different. Where they choose celebrities, actors, and singers as a group, and they go to various parts of the world. 
And the way that the Korean entertainment is set up, as these shows are being broadcasted, all of the watchers, most of them, they write comments as the story progresses. So you are kind of in that story, and you're taking part of how that story unfolds. So as these episodes uh, progress, many of the fans, they, they express their thoughts. They comment on these actions. And for this one particular show, there was a group of young boys, celebrities, they go to Africa, and they were getting criticized a lot. One morning, they come down from their hotel room, and they go to their continental breakfast, and they just put so much food on their trays. They make a mess. They leave a lot of food. It's messy. It's dirty. One of the boys come down late. He's still in his hotel bathrobe, not even properly dressed. And as they're watching that, you know what the comments were saying? They're saying, what a disgrace to our country. Thanks. Now Koreans can never travel to that area after you guys. There was even a petition to send them back home. <laughs> On another episode, they rented a Jeep for their safari run, and he was backing out, and they backed into the side of a building, damaging the deep, uh, Jeep, and immediately the party, they go, oh, good thing we have insurance. And again, the social media, people writing, is that all you care about? that you don't have to pay for it. You're giving our country a bad name. The rest of the world is going to think that Koreans can't drive because of you. And I was reading this, and I was really amazed because even though I'm Korean-American, I never would have responded in that way of how they represent me as a Korean, whether I like it or not. No Korean thinks, well, that's them. People will see me for who I am because I'm my own self. And that was a culture shock. I remember, I think it was during our honeymoon. It was at a food court. After eating, you know how you put the tray on top of the trash can? And if you're a right citizen, you put the trash in the trash can first and then the tray? I just put the tray on top of the thing. My wife goes, they're going to curse Korea because of you. <laughs> and I go, what? But for someone who grew up in that country, this idea of corporate solidarity is not foreign. It's not new. So let's try to step out of our Western individualistic mindset to see what Paul is saying. Now, the second observation I want us to make, being, seeing this concept of federal representation, I don't think we actually have a problem with this. Because whether it be through a family figure, a national figure, somebody participating in the Olympics on behalf of their country, we don't have issues with that. But I think we have more issue with the benefits that someone might bring or the lack of benefits that they bring. We're more concerned of the fact that they bring such a negative benefit to us. But if it's a positive benefit, we love this idea of representation. For example, a few weeks ago, I got a letter from Honda, the automobile company. And as it turns out, there was something wrong with my vehicle that was not up to the standards of a 2007 Honda Fit Sports Edition. Now, as a fellow Honda Fit owner, this one person, he noticed that something was wrong with the car. And so he sued Honda in 2008. And after 10 years, they come to a settlement. And this letter says, as a proud owner of a Honda 2007 Fit, you now have the opportunity to take claim to 
to a portion of this settlement? And I immediately responded saying, yes, I take claim. And it's because of what another fit owner had done by paying the legal fees, taking Honda to court, doing those discussions, what he had done, I received the benefits and I have no qualms about it, right? Likewise, when your congressman or congresswoman, they work hard to lower your taxes and you see more of your money come back into your bank account, we have no qualms of representation, right? But when it's negative, we have issues. And that goes to show just how much of this idolatry is in our hearts than we think. Do we call it unfair because we don't like this idea of representation, or do we think it's unfair because we think we're just getting the short end of the stick? And this is the third point, and what Paul's saying, hold right there. Before you think it's unfair, let me tell you something, because it is through this concept of representation that you are Because while Adam was your representative, now Christ is your representative. Where Adam brought sin and death, Christ, by way of representation, brings you life everlasting. Remember, Paul is making a, a comparison. Where sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and that one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. So also, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. You can translate that word in the Greek as superabounding. He's saying we need representation. And if you have issues with what representation brings, he says, wait till you see what Christ brings in you. In Adam, his trespass brought upon death for the rest of mankind. In Christ, his act of sacrifice brought salvation, not only for one act of our sins, but over every one of your sins, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. How much better, super abounding is Christ's representation. In Adam, he acted in disobedience, where Christ acted in obedience, not only to take the judgment that you and I deserve, but to be perfectly obedient, where, Christ uh, where God looks at you and he sees perfect obedience and adam we are held bondage to sin and death where everything we do is marked with sin but in christ we are free to reign with him as kings and you might still be stuck on this idea how it's unfair that i inherited sin and death from adam and with all love let me encourage you with this story and i'll end here you might be thinking well, if Adam got me into this state of sin and misery in the first place, don't bother me with the gospel and what Jesus did because I have matters to settle with God of how unfair this is. Let's say that your doctor sits you down in his office and he tells you that you're diagnosed with a kind of rare terminal cancer and it's called sin. And the effects of that cancer are not only physical death, but spiritual death for all eternity. And immediately, your face is devastated. But seeing that, the doctor, he immediately says, there is one cure available. 
and it completely removes the cancer with no possibility of relapse. Now where does your mind go? You're thinking, how can I receive this cure? What is it? How is it administered? How soon can I have it in my hands? Now, if the doctor responds that the cure is free, costing absolutely nothing to you, even though itself is of infinite value, and he says that he has it in his hands, it's available to you right now, and up to this point, your face that was in utter despair is in complete joy. And then finally, he says, the cure is placing your faith and hope in Jesus Christ is the cure. If you truly knew the seriousness of that cancer, how many of us would say, it's unfair that I got cancer in the first place. It's unfair that I get this cure, but that person on that island doesn't get it. If that's your response, what Paul is saying, I don't think you truly understood the seriousness of your sickness. Because if you truly understood how serious sin and death is in your life, fair or not, you want this cure. It's unfair that I was diagnosed with this cancer in the first place. Therefore, I'm not going to take this cure. How does that sound? Paul writes that in Christ, there is an abundance of grace and a gift of righteousness. But a gift can only be a gift if you receive it. Before that, it's just simply purchased, reserved for you. But when you place your faith and say, I believe that Jesus died for me, and you understand just how serious this sin and death is. John Calvin, he once wrote, whoever is utterly cast down and overwhelmed by the awareness of his sins, of his calamity, poverty, and disgrace, he has advanced farthest in the knowledge of himself. What he's saying, the deeper you know how hopeless you are, the better you know yourself. And when you do face death, perhaps on that bed, perhaps in that accident, I want to give you this hope. There is no fear because death is not the way it's supposed to be. And when that moment comes for all of us, do not say, it's just the way of life. No. Say, I trust in Jesus' death and resurrection and I'm going to a place where there is no more death, no more misuse, no more corruption, but life everlasting. That is available for you today. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, as we end our time, I give the church an opportunity to pray on your own to God. And I don't know where all of you are spiritually, but whether you've been a Christian for a long time, whether you have an utter hatred against God, Come to know that God brought you here this morning for a reason, to give you this word, that this gospel is available, this cure is available for you. And only if you realize the reality of your sin will you come to receive this cure in faith. So I invite you, if you're a Christian, recommit your life and say, God, thank you. Thank you for this cure. And if not, receive him freely as offered in the gospel. Let's pray.